You're listening to Artistic Finance, Show 92. On today's show, I chat with Stafford Arima, Artistic Director of Theatre Calgary. We discuss his finances as a freelance theatre director, including moving from Canada to be resident director of Broadway's Ragtime, how much he socked away for retirement during his 20 years freelancing, and his newest job as an artistic director, which is his first full-time and steady job, which he came into during his 40s. Stafford talks about his parents' relationship with gambling and the death of his uncle that shaped his perspective on money. At the start of the show, we chit-chat about theater before getting to finance. I did cut out some of our gossiping, including a discussion about Allegiance on Broadway, which Stafford directed. That was a show that starred George Takei, Leah Salonga, and Telly Leung. You can access that part of the interview by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash artistic finance, or listen to the end of the show to learn how to access it for free. Shout out to our listeners from our neighbor up north. After the U.S. and the U.K., Canada makes up our largest listener group. So hello and bonjour to all of you, and thank you for listening. And now, without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ethan Steimel, and today I welcome director Stafford Arima to the show. Hello, friend. How are you? So good. So good. We are recording this March 6th. 2022. And for all intents and purposes, COVID is gone, except for the people who are going to get it and die. And the fact that theaters still have to take precautions. So the war in Ukraine is ongoing and is a tragedy. We're all living our lives. I know people are trying to help where they can, but it is just a mess. That's where we are in time and space. And then Stafford, La Jolla Playhouse just opened Banging It? Or is it in previews? What's the status of that? So Bangin' It, which is a, uh, a brand new musical that's making its world premiere at the La Jolla Playhouse, begins previews on March the 8th. So Tuesday coming up is our very first preview. So we are right now in the final throngs of tech uh, to get ready for first preview. And then we open March the 20th. All right. Fantastic. And I just want to point out that you have an all-star design team. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, we've got a, a terrific designer by the name of Robert Brill, who is doing our sets, and Linda Cho, who is doing our costumes, and David Bengali, who's doing our projections. Jonathan Deans, who I've worked with on a number of projects, uh, is doing our sound. Amit is doing our lights. We've got this amazing crew and uh, technical support staff at the La Jolla Playhouse. Uh, it's it's a, a cornucopia of just an amazing array of talents that are uh, all coming together to help bring this great and exciting new musical to life. Yeah, it's awesome. And you and I for five months now have been trying to get this interview recorded. 
And when this show was announced, maybe in December, that you were directing it, I remember looking at the design team and thinking, whoa, those are all fantastic designers. And of course, a, a fantastic director. Well, you know, I feel very blessed to uh, be in the company of such extraordinary artists and creative thinkers. And when you're in the the kind of hive of tech and in this darkened theater, in this beautifully sacred space where theater art is created to be in the company of such extraordinary visionaries uh, who are all coming at the project from different perspectives is uh, humbling beyond belief. I love it. So congratulations for that. I hope the run is super successful and there's totally life after it. But I and I and maybe one day I'll see the show because it just seems like a super fun show, a banging new musical, perhaps. Totally is. And, you know, I think what's great about uh, where we are today and as you opened up this podcast and discussing and mentioning COVID and pandemic and the theater uh, works like banging it and theater in general is going to uh, prevail from this pandemic. I have firm belief that as the months, the days, the years go by and we really move into this endemic kind of energy of, of the world, theater will be back thriving in a way that uh, people have not seen in a long time. But some more gossip before we even get to our interview, <laughs> which is this is so I just two weeks ago, I lit a musical called A Class Act at Theater Row. Somehow through it, I randomly looked at the Internet Broadway database. I saw that the associate director was Stafford Arima. <laughs> so and that show has only as far as I know, that show, at least in New York, the last time it was done was your Broadway version in 2001. And now here in 2022, it was done again. So I just think that's funny because you and I have never met. We have no connection, except we both worked on that musical. The universe, she's a, she's a mysterious lady, that universe. And I guess in a almost serendipitous way, we find these connections and how theater feels very vast and large. And there's a lot of people. It's actually quite a small community. And even though there are thousands and thousands of plays and musicals, the connecting point, the degrees of separation become so small. And a class act, you know, it's not like we both did, you know, Little Shop of Horrors or something. Uh, a class act is a, a unique, unique, uh, one-of-a-kind musical that had a a glorious life and uh, about a celebrated lyricist that a lot of people didn't know. I was so honored to be a part of that production and to uh, work alongside Lonnie Price, who directed it and co-wrote it and starred in it, to um, learn about the man behind uh, a chorus line that most people didn't know. So now let's get on to you, Stafford Arima. First thing, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, as a young boy growing up in Toronto, Canada, I had always been fascinated by the storytelling properties of a musical. The very first musical I ever saw was Evita, uh, written by Andrew Lloyd Webber, directed by Harold Prince at the Schubert Theater in Los Angeles in 1980. 1980, I was 11 years old. It forever changed my life being in a dark room with a bunch of people 
sitting in the last row of a balcony, experiencing what looked like little ants running around the stage and singing. I knew nothing about Ava Perone or uh, Hal Prince or Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice. I just came into a space and I guess, you know, the cliche, I was bitten by the theater bug. I pursued theater really for my entire life, first as an actor. I thought that was where my place was. And it was only later on when I was at York University in Toronto studying theater that I met a professor named Ron Singer, very instrumental in opening my eyes to the possibility of directing versus acting, which I will forever have gratitude towards Ron because he obviously saw something that I didn't see. And uh, in my mid-20s, I moved to New York City and then stayed there for 20 years before I moved back to Canada to become the artistic director of Theatre Calgary, which is the largest theatre in southern Alberta. Moved back in 2017 and have maintained that extraordinary job of working within a great city with a great community, allowing theater and the feedback loop of theater, how to touch an audience, how to touch a city, how to touch a community, and how that affects programming, how it affects initiatives. And it's been an eye-opening play, musical, just to be in this great position and to be able to collaborate with a wonderful and uh, adventurous group of people in Canada. So coming back to the United States for like a freelance gig, which is what Banging It is, has also touched me in many ways because I really for 25 years, almost a quarter of a century, uh, was a freelancer. That's what I did was my identity. That's where all of my income came from. Leaving it in 2017 for this artistic director position obviously put me into a, a different uh, understanding of what a full-time job meant. I never had a full-time job. I had a, a solid foundation to know that I was going to receive a paycheck you know, every other week. And that never happened for 25 years. I, I always remember, Ethan, almost to the day in November of whatever year, I would wake up, jolt out of my bed at like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and run to my uh, Philofax. This was kind of in the days when you had your calendar in a, in a book, and I'd look at the next year. So I'd wake up in, you know, whatever, 2009 and November, and I'd look ahead to 2010, and it would be empty. It would be empty. That was uh, kind of terrifying, obviously, because I would wake up, I would wake up instantaneously, run and look ahead and realize, how am I going to pay rent? I, I was paying rent uh, and continued to pay rent until I left New York. So having stability as an artistic director is so new to me. And it's coming very late in my life because I was in my late 40s. Um, I'm 52 now. So I was 48 or something when, when that stability entered into you know, my financial 
kind of world. That's very interesting. Also, we just had a lighting designer named Lap Chi Chu on the show, and he got married at 45 and combining finances. That's just a very unique thing where you're well established into a career and then you're getting this new financial framework. Yeah, 48 getting a steady paycheck. I must ask, do you like the steady paycheck? Uh, Of course. (laughs) I mean, how can one not? um, You know, I have such a, I guess, bizarre relationship with money. I guess I would point the finger to my parents Uh, My father, who is still alive, living in Toronto, my mother is no longer with us, but their relationship with money was very unique. And I inherited through observation and through experience that similar relationship where I'm sure many questions about like, you know, did I have debt? I did have debt, but not an extraordinary amount of it. I believed that it was important to always pay off one's credit card. Uh, However, there were times when I couldn't, and so you'd rack up that interest. And those are the old, you know, don't ever rack up the interest in credit card. And But my relationship with money is bizarre. And maybe, you know, if you ask some questions, I can explain how bizarre it is. Uh, But in answering your first question, does it feel good to have some stability in your life? And the answer would be yes, especially in the world of the last two years with COVID, when so many artists, freelancers, not just in the arts, but everywhere, have been dealt a really hard blow. Having stability during this time was a uh, obviously a godsend. And I can absolutely relate to that freelance thing of I, I don't have anything for next year. Because I'm about to do these seven shows at Pace University, and they expire in May. And then if I look at my calendar, if there's any producers listening, please pay attention here. (laughs) Starting the first week of May, I have nothing for the rest of time. In in pre-COVID, that was a normal thing, as you said. Then COVID happened, and we've had this sort of like rush of work since last fall. And now this is the first lull of going back to the old times. But talking about that, I was curious, since you sort of had this, we'll say a career shift, even though you're doing the same thing directing, can you tell us about the start of your career? So when you first started freelancing as a director, what did your finances look like then? And then jump forward to at 48 when you became artistic director, what were your finances then, right right as you became artistic director? When I moved to New York, I moved as a an assistant resident director of a musical called Ragtime in nineteen ninety-eight. I had, I guess we can I can clarify, I did actually have a full-time job for just under two years when I was in the resident director department. Resident directors are individuals who are with a production and maintain the artistic integrity of it on a daily basis. For just under two years, I did have a full-time job being a resident director. Once the show closed and I moved into, I guess at that point, a truly freelance each job is its job because I didn't resident direct after that. My finances were always up and down. Uh, there were times that I knew 
when it was a little tighter, I would be carrying, you know, two big laundry sacks five blocks away so I could do my laundry, put all the quarters in and sit there and do the laundry that way. When I knew things were a little bit more comfortable, then I could totally drop off my laundry and have the wash and fold or the fluff and fold friends do it and then pick it up and it's a dollar a pound or something like that. And so I always kind of knew where my finances were based on how I did my laundry. And it really was up and down. And again, sometimes you work on a show as a freelancer and that covers you for kind of a couple of months and then you get another show and that might tide you over for another few months. Then you get a show and you direct Ultra Boys, which was kind of my first big break in New York. And we just celebrated our 17th year. And that show lasted a number of years off Broadway. So uh, as a result of that, I was fortunate and lucky to have been a part of that show because I was a part of that show from its inception, I had the comfort of receiving kind of weekly royalties based on the fact that it was still running. So there was a little bit of income coming in from Alter Boys that was, I guess, on so many levels, another full-time job, even though I wasn't full-time at the theater. My relationship with my finances today, now that I have a full-time job, I'm in a different ecosystem of who I am as a person, has more comfort than I did, you know, 21 years ago. Adding to that, you know, you're now in a different tax bracket, which just is kind of crazy, you know, in its own sense. And because I am a dual citizen, I have citizenship in Canada and I have citizenship in the United States, I have to pay taxes in both countries. Even if I don't work in the United States, but I only work in Canada, I still have to pay worldwide taxes for any income that I make. Uh, so that's not fun. And <laughs> I remember the first time that it happened, I literally was uh, like in shock. I was to my accountant, I have an accountant in the United States, and I have an accountant in Canada. And I just was frozen for probably 10 seconds that I, I had to pay this amount of money for, you know, work that obviously I get in Canada, but having not worked in the States for a couple of years, why am I paying the United States. So perhaps more stability, but doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, now everything is easier. Yeah. I, I didn't really think about having an accountant in the States and one in Canada. I just, not knowing taxes, I just assumed your Canadian accountant could sort of file the United States ones and or vice versa. Yeah, I'm sure there is probably someone in Canada who can, but maybe not because obviously it has to go through, you know, and I... I've never done my taxes. I'm it's, you know, I can collect the receipts and, you know, tally up all of that stuff, but uh it's just it's kind of mind-blowing to me and there are professionals who can do this with their eyes closed and who know things much better. So, yes, the recommendation of having well, I had my accountant for, you know, uh, my US accountant for 
probably a good 15, 16 years and uh, have adored her and her colleagues. So just felt, why not stay and continue that relationship? All right, Stafford, I'm going to blow your mind again, because I actually knew you directed Alter Boys, but I forgot the first show I ever saw in New York was at New World Stages. <laughs> and it was Alter Boys. Wow. Well, I mean, we are quite connected, Ethan. <laughs> so one of the designers on Banging It, Jonathan Deans, a celebrated uh, sound designer, we've worked together sometimes where I was an assistant or a production assistant, and now jump forward to banging it. I'm the director of this piece. And Johnny also sound designed Carrie for me at uh, MCC Theatre when we did the revisal of it. Uh, but we were talking the other day and I said, you know, it's so interesting, Johnny, you've seen me kind of grow from a production assistant uh, back in like 2015 to directing, also just directing in different regional theaters and different projects. And I asked him what was his first gig. And he said his early gig was he, he was a mixer, sound mixer for Vita. And I said, oh, I said, where, where did you do that? And he said, oh, on Broadway, London, and in Los Angeles. And I said, oh, you mean in 1980? And he went, yes, at the Schubert Theater. And I said, well, I said, I guess that's when we first met because I came to see that show with Lonnie Ackerman, who played Ava, and he was like, yes. And so it's probably a good chance that he was mixing the show while me and my mom were sitting in the last row of the balcony experiencing Evita. So who knew that you'd sit at New World Stages and watch Alter Boys and 17 years later, we'd be on, on your podcast talking about theater, finances, and uh, our connections that started, I guess, 17 years ago. That is just insane. That's amazing. <laughs> okay. All right. So back to financial questions here. Um, you mentioned you didn't have much debt uh, when you started out. Do you have debt now? I have debt now. I have a mortgage. So I became a first-time homeowner when I moved back to Canada. I had rented a uh, one-bedroom apartment in New York City and the right in the bowels of Manhattan on 56th Street and 9th. I, I had stayed there for my full 20 years. I did not move. It was pretty decent when I came in. It was probably just, just over a thousand a month or like about 500 and something square feet. No laundry in the building, no concierge, no elevator, just a good old fourth floor walk up. I always say that I had the best thighs in New York because those fourth flights of stairs were pretty, uh, it was a great workout. But I paid rent for the 20 years and it, it went up to just over $2,000 by the 20 years. So that was a pretty great deal still for Midtown Manhattan to have that accessibility uh, and not be paying like $5,000 a month. But after I moved and took out the old calculator and just added up a kind of average, I was like, wow, like that's a lot of money to put out for 20 years. Before my mom crossed over, 
one of her wishes was that I had real estate. She knew that I was paying rent and perhaps my mother coming from a, an old fashioned, I say that in quotes, idea of having a home or having property. She got her wish, uh, but now I'm in debt. So that's the reality of where I am in uh, right now with regard. Oh, and I'm, I lease a car. So I guess that's also considered debt. It's interesting that everybody with a mortgage mentions that. My wife and I, we rent. And a lot of people don't look at rent as a debt, but we do. Yes, we're not gaining anything out of it like a mortgage, but I still think that's an obligation that we owe. And so as long as I have my name on a lease, I feel like I'm in debt, even though it's a little different. Well, with that frame of mind, then like just having a cell phone account, right? Then you have debt there because there's, unless you don't want to have a cell phone or cable or Netflix or something, then, you know, you have these expenses. I would call them expenses and they're fixed expenses because they're fixed and, you know, you need a place to live. You don't need a phone, but kind of maybe you do and I do. So, you know, all these fixed expenses added up and even though I have mortgage debt and car lease debt, I also have. Yeah, I guess maybe it's just for me that the rent is such a large chunk. Maybe that maybe that's for some reason it's different to me because it's like that's a huge one. Right. Um, just out of curiosity, do you budget? No, no. Uh, you know, and again, don't blame my parents, but uh, they did not budget at all. And we always uh, had a roof over our head. There was always food on the table. There was always clothes on my back. There was always the comfort of, you know, heat and air conditioning and a car. But because my parents, my mother had a full-time job. My father was a freelancer. They had a robust relationship with gambling and would go to Vegas for a couple of weeks and come back. And that summer we had an in like a pool in our backyard and lobster tails on the barbecue and ribeye steaks. And then they'd go to Vegas and um, then we'd have mac and cheese for a couple of weeks. So I always kind of knew when they went to Vegas and won big and also when they went to Vegas and lost big. My mother also was uh, the recipient of, in Canada, a kind of lotto ticket, bought a ticket and won almost a quarter of a million dollars. My parents uh, had thoroughbred racehorses that they, not like just a couple of lotto tickets and the odd visit to Vegas, you know, horses and so, you know, my earliest memories of outings with my parents were at the racetrack going and picking up all the tickets on the floor. And I don't know why, because they were kind of colorful and having these roast beef sandwiches uh, with raw onions and gravy and being around horses and poker nights at my parents' house. So they really loved to gamble. I didn't really come into the world of that. I don't, that didn't... I didn't inherit that. And I remember I would talk to my mother a couple of times about, you know, going to play slots and they'd go to like to the dollar slots or the $100 slots or something. And I'd be at the penny slots because, and she once said to me, it's just zeros. It's just zeros. 
And I'm like, well, but there's a big difference between a no zero slot machine and one that has two. Uh, and she said, yes, but you can win lots more, obviously on the more zeros. And I said, I would never gamble. And um, I won't say that it got them in trouble, probably because my mother had a full-time job and a decent paying full-time job. We were a middle-class household. They owned their bungalow in Toronto, didn't drive fancy cars, but there was always a new car, you know, kind of every seven years. They loved GM, always bought the GM cars, Oldsmobiles and Buicks, didn't ever go into the German cars or even the Japanese cars. But I said I'd never, ever gamble. Later on, she was very smart to say, what a hypocrite you are, because you gamble your your whole career is about gambling. You spend hours and years developing a show that might never come to fruition. And on some level, not that you're developing shows in, in order to hit the, I call it the kind of Broadway jackpot of a Les Mis or a Wicked, but you are investing a lot of time in something that might never come to any theater, forget even about Broadway. I guess in so many ways you do kind of gamble as an artist working on a show or whatever else. But I, I, I do enjoy the odd lotto ticket, especially when it's up to that, you know, 80 gazillion dollars. And I'm like, why not buy a few tickets? And when I visited Vegas, I, I think more in kind of um, paying homage to my mom, I would take out, you know, a $50 bill and stick it in the slot machine and just keep pushing the thing. And of course you'd win and it would go up to like, you know, the ticket would now be worth whatever, $800 or something. And then 20 minutes later, you leave with a dollar. My mother would always say, if you win, leave, don't stay, take that $800 and go and get a coffee or something. And, but I guess that's the beauty of gambling. And you want to, you believe, oh, I'm going to win more. I'm going to now add a zero to that 800, like my mother would say, and it's going to become 8,000 or even 8 million. This is incredible because I go to Vegas and I see people gambling and I am not a gambler. And I'm just wondering, like, how who are all these gamblers? Like in my brain, it's like these are all fake people, like these are all robots (laughs) because I don't know anybody in my personal life that actually goes to Vegas and gambles like that. But here, Stafford, you're telling me these people are real. (laughs) These people are real. And my father is, you know, 93 years old and still loves to go to the casino. I guess that's the dream. My parents uh, are second generation, so they're born in Canada. The dream is that money is going to take all of our troubles away. And I know my parents had a very communal energy with gambling and again poker night and so it wasn't just you know about sitting isolated at a at a slot machine but there is something very kind of community-based even going to the track and being there with other people and standing up and and also very strategic right especially in when you're handicapping racehorses you know you're not just i go there and go i like the name so i'm going to pick the name or something or the number. No, my parents really understood like how to handicap nine times out of 10. They'd spend hours handicapping and getting the 
the racing form like three days earlier to figure everything out, go and win nothing. And then sometimes just pick the name because it said Stafford Sailor or something because it's my name. And then that's the one that would win, you know, all the money. So there's no rhyme or reason, but it they had fun. And that was what my mother would always remind me is that that's her form of entertainment. My form of entertainment might be going to watch a, you know, a Barbara Streisand concert in Las Vegas and spend $1,500 on a ticket. And my mother's would be spending $1,500 at a slot machine. As they say in Canada, chacun son goût to each his own. I love that. Exactly. Go spend $1,000 seeing a Broadway show or go to the casino. There is no difference and they probably take the same amount of time. I also think that's interesting that your mother says, well, you're gambling with your career, being a freelancer, tying yourselves to these shows. And I think that anytime there's a Broadway show that opens and closes after one performance or even a week of performances and people think, oh, wow, what a dud of a show or what there were so many problems with that show. Every time I see that, I think that's five years of somebody's life. Yeah, they got it there. They got it there, which is great and better than a lot of other shows. All that five years just to get a bad review or just for people not to like it or just for the producers to run out of money and, and just be able to get it up that one night. In a way, it is gambling. It's a long, extended five-year term gambling. <laughs> long, extended, and for those uh, producers and investors who have put money into that project and in one fell swoop of a review or a pandemic, it closes. And um, But that's also... I guess the gamble, you win some, you lose some. And I don't ever think that anyone who is a part of a show, whether it's on Broadway or off, off, off Broadway or a regional production, we always win. And maybe a producer might not agree with that or an investor, but we always win because even for that one night or one performance, we have made a difference in the audience's life on some level. And if we can touch an audience and awaken something in them, even if it's just one show, then I feel we've done our job. I think of Carrie, the musical that, you know, the infamous Broadway musical that closed, you know, whatever, a few days after its opening. And it, a whole book was written about it called Not Since Carrie, A History of Broadway Flops. And years later, having the opportunity to direct a revival of it off-Broadway and to have a whole new generation of audience members come to see the show and love the show and feel connected to the story and, you know, have a cast album that people can now download and hear this score in its fabulousness means that without the first production and even before that, the Stratford production, that then came to Broadway and then closed. So it's it continues to give in so many ways, maybe years later, but it still continues to give. All right, Stafford, all right, you did the revival and then the New York Film Academy, where I sometimes work, they saw that and then they did a production that I lit. So we're connected again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think the next thing aside from this podcast is we're going to have to work together now because uh, 
just seems that's the next progression of all of these connections we find. That, that, that'll that'll happen soon. Everyone check back in five years and see what show we we worked on together. <laughs> um, all right. So what is a good financial decision that you've made? I think a good financial decision, I don't know if I've made any. I feel that having an accountant was important. Was that something you decided? Was that something your parents advised you? Why did you decide to get an accountant? Well, yes, I, my my mother did her own taxes. My mother actually worked as a money market trader in Canada, specifically in Toronto. And she was one of the first women in, you know, kind of the history of that field uh, in the 50s to uh, work at a company and go from being kind of like, I guess, an assistant secretary, as they were called back then, and move into the world of actually being a money market trader. Uh, So she was very kind of um, adept with money figures. We didn't have or they didn't have an accountant. So when I moved to the States, uh, when I started to make money, I thought, I just don't know this system here. And it was probably pretty easy because, again, it was a a job where I would get some slip, right? It wasn't about writing this off. So I would get some tax slip. But I I felt that I needed someone to kind of help and guide me. I never had a financial advisor, although probably I, I would have benefited from one. The best thing I ever did was probably just to pay off any credit card debt I was accumulating. If that meant I had to, you know, go to um, the laundromat with the bags in my bag of quarters, if it meant that I had to eat uh, pasta with canned tomato sauce for a month versus ordering takeout sushi twice a week or something, uh, then that's what I would do. So it was kind of more, I don't know if you can even say this, but like guerrilla financial ideas, like it wasn't anything really smart. It was maybe the only smart thing was that I didn't accumulate a tremendous amount of credit card debt. I mean, that sounds pretty good to me because that that's actually a recurring theme on this show is the credit card debt. Don't accumulate the credit card debt because that that seems to be the one like student loans we all know about, mortgage we all know about. Those are big ticket things, but it's that credit card that's always fluctuating, always revolving. That's one to really keep your eye on because it can get away. And then of course, get an accountant, I think is also a good idea. But you know, and easier for you because you're coming to a different country, it makes sense. I don't know the rules here. Made that decision easy for you, but I think even people here not the worst idea. And once you do it, you don't go back. <laughs> yeah. And especially as a freelancer, there are so many, you know, I mean, there is a write-off. Can you write this off? And if you did pretty well in a year, then, you know, the question is, did you, you know, is there, maybe you need to buy a computer because you need something to, you know, I don't know, like there's just so many ways to figure out your freelance. Um, an accountant is, knows much more and it's changed right like even recently with you know the past few administrations it's changed so i wouldn't even know what are you allowed to write off now or not so when you were freelancing that first job you had you said you were getting a slip a notice of how much money you made each year so i assume that was w2 income yes 
when you were freelancing, how much was 1099 versus W-2 for you for as a director? The majority of my income in the United States it was 1099. Okay, okay, even, all right. For that first show was not, though, that Ragtime Resident Director? Ragtime Resident Director was not because I was employed by a company, uh, which was at that point Live Entertainment, that hired me to work for the company. So I had benefits, kind of I was an employee of the company when you're just directing an allegiance or an altar boys, then you're in a you're in a freelancer kind of 1099 world. Okay, so then and now that you're working in Canada, do you have the 1099 versus W2? How does that work for you now? So now we're I, I think it's called like a T4 slip, which is because I work for a company, I don't have the ability to, you know, write things off. Um, it's a full-time salary with benefits. And so it becomes a, and I guess, well, because I haven't directed freelance in Canada since I've moved back. So when that happens, then it would be a different, it would be kind of like the equivalent of the 1099. So your taxes are pretty easy now, I'm guessing. The taxes are pretty easy in Canada now going to be complicated because I've not worked in the United States for a couple of years. And so with this job for banging it, it'll be interesting just to see what uh, 2021 is going to bring. Oh, right. Because you started it last year. Right. So I was in discussions in 2021, but my first payment didn't come until 2022. So you'll figure that out next year. (laughs) As you can see, I can't even know when I got paid. So I definitely need someone to help me out. <laughs> um, all right. So now your retirement plan, I, I'm thinking this is going to be complicated because 20 years in the U.S. and now five years or so in, in Canada. Do you have a retirement plan? And if so, what, is, what are all the pieces? I have a retirement plan in Canada that's based on what they call an RRSP with the company that I work for, Theatre Calgary. In the States, I did not because I was freelancing And so I did try to put some money away. And that's one thing that I would say to everybody, put money away. Uh, I didn't really. And when I did, I had to sometimes use it to pay off the credit card or something. So, you know, I kind of left New York, not with like a great amount of savings. And that's something that it's not that I'm ashamed of. It's the facts. And That's because, once again, my relationship with money is when you have it, spend it. When you have it, share it. And when you don't have it, eat uh, mac and cheese. Stafford, I cannot thank you enough for saying that, for being really honest about that. That's a hard thing to do and to say. And as artists and freelancers, we don't talk about this amongst ourselves because there's a lot tied up in it and people don't want to say that. And I can't tell you the, the number of people I've asked to be on this show that say, like, I have good lessons for people, have good advice, I have all this, but I don't want to talk about it. So, so thank you so much for saying that. And a follow-up question about that. When you were putting money aside in, in savings, were you putting it in a retirement account, like a tax-deferred thing, or were you just setting it aside in a bank account? No, I was putting it in with, um, I remember, or I still have it a little bit with Merrill Lynch in the United States and um, like putting it in some, again, see, it's such so embarrassing. Like I can't even tell you what it's in. What are some, what is it called? 
The S&P 500? No. Mutual funds? Mutual funds. And then something else that was like... ETFs? I don't know. You can put a certain amount every year up to a certain amount of money. Yeah. I mean, an IRA. IRA. There you go. IRA. So, yes. So, uh, you know, when I did my will recently, it was a perfect opportunity to actually like go and like see what accounts I still had and did I have a little bit of money still in an IRA in the United States, which I do. And, uh, but I would just call Merrill Lynch, speak to someone, an advisor, and they would recommend do this and do that. And uh, same thing I do kind of in Canada. When you turn 50 and you start to realize that what's gonna happen when I'm 70, and if I'm alive even at 70, but if you are alive at 70, 80, I'm single. And so, you know, who's going to take care of me? And am I going to need some care? And who's gonna, where am I going to live? Uh, do I need to live in a, a senior's home that has help? Who's going to pay for that? So you start thinking of, of things like that and go, wow, like you need to save money for that retirement. And my uncle, who used to work for the post office, saved and saved and saved and saved and saved a lot of money and he died i mean this was many years ago and he still had his like pyrex plates from the 40s or 50s and my uncle loved to golf but he still had his old golf clubs that you know were bandaged up and uh because he retired from the post office with a really great amount of savings, and then a year later died. Those are moments that I go, well, okay, so we're going to save, save, and save for the majority of our life, not enjoy it, not have any benefits from the hard work that we all do, whether you're a theater director, or you're, you know, you have your own business, or you work at Starbucks, whatever it might be but you're saving for 65. And then at 65, in my uncle's case, he died a year later. The inheritance that all of the family received, I just felt so blessed and honored to receive some of that uh, inheritance, a very small amount. And I that small amount was actually used to get my green card because I felt that it was really important to use that gift for something not like, you know, a new watch or something. I think of that story, do I save for that 65 years of age? And then will something like happen to me like my my uncle? Or do I live now, be responsible in saving where I can, because then you wake up and you have something called COVID that enters into the world. And it puts a different kind of spin on one's mortality and one's time you wake up and as you said you look at the news and look what's happening in ukraine for all of those incredible people who six months ago were going to the store to buy an apple and take their daughter to the daycare and now look and and also you see money not solving anything there because all the billionaires are now scrambling to get rid of their assets and all this and it's like wow i really want to be a billionaire but now look at the Russian billionaires, like, yeah, doesn't look so appealing at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess the, the only advice I would give to anyone is uh, stay true to your understanding and relationship with money and really have some heart to heart conversations with money 
and and what it means to you is it going to make you happy and if it is going to make you happy then how are you going to multiply that through investments or whatever else and if money doesn't mean a lot to you then that doesn't mean you shouldn't invest and you shouldn't save but by having these potent conversations with yourself you become responsible for inevitably whatever happens and my parents would put 100 dollar slot things in machines and come away losing thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and sometimes would put a couple of things in and come back you know with $800,000 and a new pool and a new car is that the way most people want to live probably not but they owned it and we're still responsible as parents for a kid who's needed to go to school and have clothes on their back and all of that stuff so that's a that's a beautiful story about your parents and the gambling and also about your uncle and the green card using the money for the green card i think that's a beautiful can life ever be poetic? Well, that story, yes, if so. So yeah, thank you for sharing. That's that's really beautiful. Okay, and a just for fun question. What is the most financially lucrative job that you've ever had? I would probably say, well, that's an, it's an interesting question because I was going to say Theater Calgary because it's a full-time job that, uh, you know, is full-time employment for currently in my fourth year. However, I, I guess I could... I would have to think about Alter Boys and its kind of journey from page to stage. And so I don't know. I mean, maybe that was lucrative because that was a extended period of time that it ran off Broadway and had a number of other productions. But I think uh, the most stable, obviously, has been this new job as artistic director. Yeah, that's a that's a trend we see is that it's not the big amount or the big thing or the, the high profile thing, it's the steady job with the steady paycheck that adds up over time consistently. Those are the most lucrative. Uh, question about Alter Boys. So you were getting a little weekly percentage as it was running. When it went into licensing and like colleges and stuff, did it, you as director of that, did you get any cut of that? Yes, yes. Okay, so like if, if we were to do the show now, because it, it was at a summer stock that I go to in Forsberg, New York uh, last year, they did the show for a week. Would you get like a dollar from that? You probably something like that or 50 cents or, but there, there would be some kind of residual royalty that happens in its kind of what we would call stock and amateur post the closing on uh, in New York. That's where I do most of my lighting design work in the stock and amateur circuit. <laughs> well, there's no such thing really as amateur. I mean, that's probably a very dated, unwoke thing to say. Um, I don't know what it's called. I, th I mean, the old days, we called it stock and amateur, but... That, that's a still a good way to say it. I don't know about woke. I mean, is, is anything woke these days? So probably not. But you and me, we make eye contact here. We understand. Yes, stock and amateur. <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay, so I think we've covered so much. Actually, there's one more thing because you were talking about your relationship with money and giving and sharing. Do you give to charity? Yes, I mean, it's something that I feel I give, I try to give a lot, but I spread it around to, so it's not like just one, I have relationships with charities in the United States. I have some new relationships with charities in Canada. And uh, I, I'm not, I don't consider myself like a philanthropic 
you know, person, but I, I believe in giving, sharing, and when, especially you can, and when you're in the financial means to be able to extend that out, I love to do it. And even if it's like a small amount, but I can give a little bit to, you know, 50 organizations, I think every penny, dollar, a hundred dollars or whatever it is counts and adds up to, adds up to something for that organization or not for profit. Yeah. Yeah. We're pretty much ready to wrap up. There was a couple questions we skipped over because we just got into things. First one is, can you describe your demographics? So I'm a single uh, identified as a male. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, uh, born in Toronto. Uh, I'm third generation, uh, Japanese, Chinese, Canadian. My mother uh, was Chinese Canadian, my father Japanese Canadian, and I drive a Subaru. You are a bus backwards. That's what I think, Subaru. <laughs> oh, is that is that? Oh, bus, right. From when I was seven years old. <laughs> oh, I'm going to use that now. Thanks for sharing. Um, okay, amazing. And then your education, you went to college. Yeah, so I did a, uh, a four-year honors degree uh, at York University in Toronto, for 10 years, I would say I kind of did my master's, but I didn't go to school. I worked with a few masters of the industry and had the opportunity of assisting great directors like Harold Prince, Mike Ockrent, who no longer is with us and neither is Hal, uh, Frank Galati, who uh, from Steppenwolf, Chicago, director, writer, that was my real education. The formal education was getting a degree uh, in uh, theater, but the real education was those 10 years of working with these great, great individuals. Amazing. All right, and my favorite question, what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? Or what is a piece of art that you like? Live theater would be, for me, the experience that I would want to um, keep in my life for as long as I could. I love going to concerts, uh, although now for me personally, I'm a little kind of nervous about that. Theater has been in my blood since I was 11 years old. I believe it's here to stay. And that experience will uh, continue to uh, nurture and nourish me. If you had to pick one show to go see tomorrow somebody said we'll fly you anywhere in the world also covid doesn't exist so every show is running what show would you go see i would travel back in time to see michael bennett's production of dream girls i actually saw that production the original production uh that was my first broadway show that i ever got to see at the imperial theater and uh with jennifer holiday and the original cast but to experience Bennett's direction now and understanding theater in a different way, that would be something I'd love to be in that front row seat at the Imperial Theater and watching, I think, one of the greatest director choreographers uh, bring to life a musical that is, uh, for me, my favorite. I also would go back in time and see that because the lighting was by Theron Musser, who is like the godmother of theatrical lighting. And so, man, I all right, we'll, we'll get in the time machine and we'll go watch that show together. Absolutely. Theron's a genius. And Theron was, I never obviously worked with Theron, but um, 
have worked with a number of incredible lighting designers who uh, were influenced deeply by Theron's work, Howell Binkley, uh, who is no longer with us, Natasha Katz, who is still with us. And um, those greats are still on our stages because of the influence that they have managed to um, uh, touch all of the designers, directors, writers uh, as we move forward. Stafford, thank you so much for joining me today. I know it took us five months. You have been so kind in rearranging schedule and and making this happen. And you gave me an hour and a half of your day at 8 a.m. on a Sunday. Thank you so much for, for being here and joining us. My pleasure, Ethan. And thank you for all of your great work and for illuminating, I think, an important conversation, especially for artists during this time. That's it for this week's episode. My takeaways are the gambling. I don't come from a gambling world, and it's amazing to find somebody who grew up with that. I toured as the lighting designer for the magic show Masters of Illusion, and that was across the U.S. and Canada, and many of our shows were in casinos. So I've been in many casinos, including those in the Philippines, cruise ships, and in Las Vegas, and it just never dawned on me that the people gambling are real people. It's fascinating to me that Stafford didn't carry on that tradition. Now, the story of Stafford's uncle dying is one that I think about a lot. Saving for retirement is important, but living now is equally important. Stafford did say something profound, and that is to figure out what your relationship is with money. Knowing what you need to make to make you happy is important to figure out. Stafford encourages getting an accountant, and he encourages you to set aside money for retirement. After 20 years of freelancing, Stafford hadn't saved as much as he would have liked. So what do you think? Did you enjoy this interview with Stafford? If so, let me know by leaving a comment on LinkedIn. Find me there using my name, Ethan Steimel. I'll make a post about this episode, and that's a great place to comment. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to keep it going, please become a patron. You get early access to episodes and you'll get the outtakes from interviews, including those today with Stafford, where we talk about his experience directing Allegiance on Broadway. Access those outtakes at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And there's one more way you can access the outtakes and for free, do that by emailing me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com. Those are available for free to anybody who isn't ready to become a patron but wants to put in the time to ask for them. That's it for today. Until next week, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.